Yo fam, Coach Sam from Strong Gens Coaching, back with another episode for you guys. And on today's episode, I got a very special guest. His name is Chuck Welsh. Uh, we're going to be getting into his life story and some of the advice he has for men and how to navigate life. But before we do that, if you could please leave a five-star review, I would greatly appreciate it. I'm trying to grow this podcast to reach as many men as possible, and I need your help. It takes a tribe, gentlemen. So go ahead, leave a five-star review, and welcome to Mr. Chuck Welsh. How are we doing today, Chuck? Doing great. Thanks, Sam. Good to be here. I'm glad you're on. Um, you've known my dad for a while now. He says you're a wealth of knowledge and you have a lot to share. So I am ready to dive in. How about you give a short introduction on you know what you've done and uh, maybe even how you you met my dad? I think that might be a good start. Yeah, your, your father and I, uh, our relationship actually goes back before we actually met if that makes any sense, because he, he was coaching football at Middletown South High School. The head football coach at Freel Township High School, and we played Middletown South. And I knew of uh, your father, you know, because of the reputation he had and, and because of the uh, reputation that that team had as a well-run program. And then we met formally in two – the year 2000, uh, I was appointed as a vice principal at uh, Middle School North in Howell, where he was serving that that district as a uh, student assistance counselor for the three middle schools. So, you know, I think he kind of knew who I was and I kind of knew who he was. So, we, you know, we kind of struck up a, a good personal relationship from that. And then I obviously I think it doesn't take long to be around him. To realize, you know, how dynamic he is and, you know, how devoted he is to what he's doing and the intensity that he brings to, to everything that he does. Um, and I was always very impressed by that. But I, I, I have to tell you that I ended up at, at um, the Howe Township Schools after a 26-year tenure in the Freehold Regional High School District. I was a, I started as a teacher at Freehold Borough High School and I coached, I was an assistant football coach. Uh, JV basketball coach. I coached uh, track for a year or two, and then I became the head softball coach there. So, you know, I actually was uh, obviously very involved in, in, in athletics, even though I was a social studies teacher, because most people, when you know, when you coach like that, they think that you you're, teach physical, physical education. But, uh, you know, I, not only did I enjoy coaching, but at that particular time, uh, you know, raising a young family, you know, it was important to to uh, you know do as much as I could to to bring some income into the household, and you know, in addition to all kinds of side jobs and things that I did, you know, I not only got gratification out of coaching, but it also helped my family have a better life. So what happened was um, after twenty six years, twenty twenty five years in in uh, the classroom. Uh, I was encouraged by a superintendent at that particular time to uh, pursue an administrative position. In order to do that, I, I had gone back to uh, graduate school and got my certification. And uh, long story short, you know, when I became eligible to be um, an administrator, the superintendent of the regional district at that time, who probably could have benefited from some of the lessons that, that guys like you and, and your father to teach people, you know, uh, passed me over for one of three jobs in that six high school district. You know, um, 
and it's fair to say that probably most people who knew me professionally thought that I was a lock for one of those jobs. So my response to that was to establish a meeting with that particular superintendent and let him know how I felt about that decision and why I thought it was wrong and let him know that I was going to be an administrator somewhere and I wasn't going to limit my options to uh, the district that he led at that particular time. So he told me, well, that's foolish. You know, you have 20 plus years of, of tenure, 25 plus years of tenure. You know, you, you're, uh, you know, wait your turn is the expression that, that he used to uh, try to get me to, you know, get in line with, with his way of thinking. Um, classic narcissism. And um, I decided that, you know, I was ready. I wasn't going to wait my turn. And I, I made an application to Howe Township Schools. And literally two weeks after that meeting that I had with the superintendent, I was appointed to, a, to that assistant principal position in Howe Township. So that's where, where Tom and I met and spent, you know, a lot of, a lot of good times. And in 2004, a brand new middle school opened up, Howe Memorial Middle School, where uh, once again, Tom's focus on middle schools brought him to work with me even more closely as a principal of that building. And uh, I spent the rest of my let's six, seven years there and then uh, retired. And after my retirement, I found uh, opportunities to work as an interim administrator. So if a district needed, for example, because a, a principal was out on medical leave or there was some kind of turmoil that, that the board had to deal with, they will sometimes bring a retired administrator in to write the ship, so to speak, and to at least, you know, provide administrative services until they could name somebody permanently for that particular job. So that was, it was a challenge. And it was something I really learned to enjoy being in a different environment. I worked in, five different districts and one of those or two of those occasions I worked directly with Tom again at Middletown South High School where you know he was he's the uh, student assistance counselor and they were fun times uh, so like we we've really uh, you know stayed close um, I think we see the world in similar ways um, I've always admired his integrity uh, his, his, like I said, his intensity, his willingness to do uh, whatever has to be done in order for the job to be done, which would benefit kids. And I had a, a, a really great experience at Middletown South, not only with, with your father, but also, you know, with the entire team up there uh, at that particular time. And the principal told me that when he reflected upon it, that Tom Letson turned that school around from the day he walked in the door. I mean, that's really high praise and, and certainly well-deserved. That is so, Yeah, so we, 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 we've had, you know, a very close relationship and stayed in touch since then, too. There's a few things you, you touched upon that I just want to talk real quick upon. Sure, sure. Um, you said my dad's intensity, and uh, he is one of the most intense dudes mm -hmm. I've come across of. But it's funny because when I was younger, I only saw him as this, intense guy this kind of robotic guy who just he does what needs to be done no matter what which is what most men should be striving to do but as i've become the adult 
I've seen more of the the childish version of him. <laughs> it maybe childish isn't the right word, but the the person who lets go a little bit. And right. I realized um, that his intensity is mostly only on the stuff that truly matters. Right. And sometimes in life, that is a big portion of your life. And right. for him to be able to dial in, and I think that's why he made a big change in those school systems, because when that guy dials in, he dials in. Um, so it's a good quality. Uh, it, I, it Just from the tone of your voice and your career, it sounds like you had the same exact intensity. And I mean, staying in a career now for 20, 30 years is not that common as it was right. back then. People are job hopping. They're just looking for the paycheck, whatever it may, may be. Um, so I think when people are doing that, the focus isn't 100 percent there. Um, and also, I went to Freeboro High School, so it's funny that you worked there for, yeah. <laughs> for so long. Uh, I'm not sure how it was when you were working there, but when I was there, uh, it was it was a great school. I, I loved it. Yeah. I loved well, it. I, you know, I, I I loved it too. I mean, I was there for 12 years before I, and the only reason I left was because I was appointed a head football coach at Freel Township. But that was a really special place. I think it continues to be. Um, so it was a it was a great way for me to start my career. The whole educational realm was was different back in the seventies. Uh, you know, if you weren't a self starter, you weren't going to do the job uh, because there wasn't a whole lot of uh, mentoring uh, or even people willing to give you assistance. You know, as a new teacher, so you had to kind of find your own way. Uh, but the bottom line was that the, that the kids that I worked with there uh, throughout my career there, I, I, I continue to have, you know, in the social, all the contacts I have, if, if you look at people who are ex-students, a great proportion of them are kids that, that graduated from Freehold Borough High School, you know, the, the uh, early part of my career. Very special place. Yeah. Yeah, it was, um, I, I hated school in general, but Freehold was a great, it was a great, like, I'm just not the... The schoolwork itself, you know, but uh, in general, it was a great school to go. go. It was very diverse, and um, they they had uh, pretty much everything that you could think of at that at that school. You know, they had medical science, they had culinary science, they had right. a, a lot of. Uh, so we had a lot of kids coming in from different counties, basically coming in right. from uh, or different right. to the school. So it was a great experience. I loved every minute of it. Um, you were in the education business, the world, the field for such a long time. What yeah. brought you there in the first place? I'm curious. Uh, that, that, yeah, that, I mean, I, I'm going to have to um, go back and, and I'm going to tell this story uh, and it's going to be a long one, I think. That's all right. That's uh, okay. You know, um, there, there was a, a Danish philosopher by the name of Kierkegaard who once said, you live your life forward, but you understand it backwards. And so what I what I tell you to answer that question really re requires me or has required me to reflect backwards and then try to get an understanding about why I made the decisions I made, not only the one I made to leave a district after 26 years, but why I became a teacher in the first place. And uh, in order to tell you that story, I, I have to let you know that my background is somewhat different from, you know, the typical person you run into on a day to day. Um, so let me just start by saying that, that Milton S. Hershey, the chocolate magnet, the guy who, who made a fortune because he developed a formula that would keep chocolate from melting and used milk 
to make this chocolate that way from melting fast and made it affordable and opened up to the middle class this treat that really only rich people used to be able to enjoy. And he did that after failing three times at various businesses. He had an ice cream business. He had a caramel business. The caramel business made him enough money so that he could sell it to invest into this new chocolate business where he wanted to, to develop this formula. But long story short, he married a, a, a woman who died very young, but, but while they were married, they couldn't have any children. And um, the two of them together decided that they were going to establish a trust fund to provide for the education and vocational training of boys at that particular time who uh, were in a needy situation, either be because one of their parents or both of their parents had passed away. That was one of the requirements for, for being uh, enrolled in the school. And the other is that they would have to show and prove that they were, uh, their income was below the poverty line at that particular time. So both of my older brothers who are 10 and 12 years older than me went to that school, but went in at a fairly more mature age, 12, 13 years old. And neither one of them liked it. I like to say they just couldn't hack it <laughs> and uh, they ended up getting out. But my, my middle brother um, did re-enroll and then graduated from the school. But my, my story is atypical because there aren't many from that era that enrolled at the minimum age, which was four, and then lasted throughout the entire, you know, 13 years from kindergarten through 12th grade. So in 1953, my mother enrolled me in the Milton Hershey School. Uh, my father passed when I was, right after I was born. And uh, I have a picture somewhere of my mom and, and the pet dog, and she's holding me as, a, as an infant. And in the background, you see a sh literally a shack, which is where we lived. Wow. Um, you know, uh, she, she was undereducated. She only had a sixth grade education. She worked hard. At, eventually, she put herself through uh, nursing school and became a licensed practical nurse and made a little bit of a living that way. And she remarried and all that. But there never was a, uh, an option given to me to disenroll from uh, Milton Hershey School. And that's probably a good thing. So at the age of four and a half, I was I was uh, put into a student home that they called cottages. It was a student home. There were 25 boys from kindergarten age, kindergarten to fifth grade and a married couple who served as house parents. And then there were other like uh, what we used to call second help, like assistant house parents, two single ladies. And then everyone's every other weekend, a different set of house parents would come in just as substitutes while the other two had their their one weekend off. It was um, a really kind of brutal way to be brought up, to be honest with you. I mean, the the, uh, the house parents that that were employed there right after World War Two and up into the 50s. I think. Answered the need for the numbers that they needed but not necessarily for the, the uh, vision or the point of view that you need to be a good person in that environment. And when I say it was br brutal, it's because it was emotionally, verbally, and physically abusive. Um, those of us who strayed from the path, I mean, we, we you know, would, would definitely get some sort of physical punishment, you know, for having done so. 
And just for the people listening, um, you were staying at the school full Yes, time. my mother, right. My mother lived a hundred miles away. At the age of four, staying Right. full time. Yeah, okay. And so Right. there were physical abuse. So what were some of the things that they had done um, to you guys, you know, that that you remember to this day? What was something that, you know, Right. happened? Well, the, the, uh, yeah, typically um, there would be group punishments if he, if the house father just happened to like be inclined to, to do that. Like if one person did something wrong, you know, um, everybody would be punished. So one of the things that he liked to do was what he called get on your hunkers. Now, what that what that means is you do you know how you do a duck walk? Yeah, of course. You know, all right. So, so you do the duck walk without walking. You just get down and hunch down like that, which is uncomfortable after a few minutes. Yeah, for sure. And then, and then he would walk around with a rubber band, a big thick rubber band, and anybody who fell off their haunches, he would snap them, you know, with the rubber band That's and pretty get enjoyment. impressive. Yeah, he was he was sadistic. He would get enjoyment out of that. Um, Real quick story, you know, this is an institutional setting. So like you, you're providing for the care for, for 25 boys and Milton Hershey School gave you everything you needed to prosper. I mean, great food, literally farm to table food, uh, nice homes, clean. Well, you helped keep them clean. Um, and, you know, clothing. Twice a year we got new clothing. They would provide you with soap and all that other stuff. The soap is an interesting story because one of my first experiences with the brutality of that place centered around soap. And what happens, it's important to note that the soap that we're talking about is ivory soap. And if you know anything about ivory soap, the big thing was that it floats. Okay, Okay. so when you're in the bathtub or whatever, you, you can always find the soap. That's <laughs> pretty fun. I didn't now, know that. now. Now, you know why it floated? Air bubbles or something? Air, Yeah. they, yeah, they, they, there was air in the middle of it. So it wasn't a solid bar of soap. Okay. Okay. So what would happen is we would use the soap. And eventually when it wore down, it wouldn't wear down like the soap that's a solid bar. There would be a hole in the middle of it. You follow me? Can you? So one, one day the uh, house mother discovers this soap with holes in it. brings it to the attention of, of her husband. And all of a sudden it's this big scandal. Who put the holes in the soap? Somebody intentionally put the holes in the soap and we're going to find out how to do it. Do you ever see the cane mutiny and the strawberry thing with Humphrey Bogart? He gets obsessed about somebody stealing his strawberries. Well, this was kind of like that. So what he did in order to uh, try to find out who the culprits were is before every meal, because we came home for lunch, Everything was in walking distance uh, in the junior division up there. We would line up at the bottom of the stairs leading up to the dining room, and he would give everybody a swat with a paddle on the butt. That would be before breakfast, before lunch, and before dinner. And then one night before dinner, um, a couple of the older kids came over to me, and I was maybe five then. And two of the other so-called little ones, there were three of us that had, had been enrolled at that young age. And these fifth graders came over, came over to us and said, if you guys don't say you did it, you're going to, you know, we're going to beat you up. So we, we, we said, okay. <laughs> so we, so the house father asked the question, we said, we did it. 
So then he says, well, how did you do it? So now, I, you know, he gave you, he gave you a, a fresh bar of soap. How did you do this? So I took it and I tried to jam it over the faucet, but it just broke, you know. Then, then I think he finally saw the light because when it broke, he saw how there was air in it and he never said another word about it. But the worst thing that happened to me was uh, we, one day we had a really nice lady who was what they call second help, Mrs. Grant. And uh, she was always good to me. And, and I spoke back to her one time. Because what we used to have to do is we used to have to, you know, dry the, wash and dry the dishes and, and, you know, dust the bedrooms. And we had to keep the place neat. I mean, the school was free, but, you know, you, you paid for it like in other ways. So um, we used we had linoleum floors, which were popular back in the 50s. And, you know, you waxed them and shined them. And we didn't have a power wax polisher. We used cut off pant legs that we would stand on and kind of skate over the floor to to bring it to a shine. But one day there was a rotation of who was supposed to do what. And she told me I had to shine the floors. I said, but yeah, it's not my turn. He overheard, the house father overheard me say that, took a, about a one inch thick dowel rod and started to beat me with it. Across the back and shoulders, hit me in the ear, hit me on the butt. I tried to I tried to get away. I remember trying to pull myself up the stairs by the rail. I didn't know where I was going, but just to get away from him. And he was foaming at the mouth. You know, I don't know. It was just, it was just bizarre. But I, I have to say, though, that in the long run, for all I got out of the experience of being in that school, it was worth it. You know, even, even to endure that. And I, and I think part of the reason it was worth it is because the school gave me opportunities I never would otherwise have, which I'll talk about in a minute. But it also, once again, looking back on my life, it taught me that that adversity can teach you things that you otherwise otherwise won't learn. What, and, and, and it also can develop in you resiliency. See, if you don't ever go through anything that, that presents you with adversity, you're never really going to know how tough you are. You know, so I, I kind of. When I when I tell stories like that, I, I, I don't want people to get the wrong idea about the school because it wasn't the intention of the people that ran the school. And it certainly wasn't intention, the intention of the Hershey's, who, by the way, he, he passed away three years before I was born. And I owe everything, everything to him and his wife. So. Um, I, I, I don't I, I don't like to come off like I don't appreciate it. You know, the fact of the matter is that particular part of it was very, very difficult. I no think, doubt. I think. Um... Any school has its, you know, downsides. Some teachers, like when I was growing up, teachers bullied me without the physical abuse. You know, like uh -huh. some even said, oh, like, because I, again, like I had mentioned earlier, I wasn't a school guy. I did not like the academics. So, for example, for me, I didn't really take my schoolwork 100% serious. And I had a couple teachers who were like, you know, you're going to amount to nothing in life. You're going to be a failure. Like, you are a failure, you know, and they would say that. And like, um, so they were never physically abusive. Um, but again, they're bound by the structures of the law. So right. where that's, a, that's, that's a horrible thing to say to a kid. Oh, yeah, exactly. So but I think um, sorry to cut you off. I just um, the experience in, in the Hershey school for you, uh, especially because it was back then, it, it's it sounds abusive. But at the same time, I was going to say, you know, um, it gave you structure too. Right. like right. it's unfortunate that some of those those house parents you know, were the, it doesn't sound like the school itself was abusive to you. Maybe you can touch upon that. It sounds like just the people who were appointed authority, which I feel like happens a lot. 
Right. No doubt. You know, like, like, um, you know, I, I've learned and I've shared this with a lot of people, particularly in my role as, a, as an educational leader. When, when people get frustrated with kids, even parents, I've, I've said this to parents, you know, that, like this, say a kid's 14 years old. He's not what he's going to be. You know, you, you have to find how to unlock whatever it is he's got inside of him. That's good. You know, find the good in them. And, and I might have said to a kid one time, unless you change A, B and C, you're going to have a hard time in life. But I would never write a kid off. I just don't think that's right. But the school thing, it, this is an interesting segue because we walked to a school building that unfortunately is no longer there. And um, the teachers that were in that school and the principal of that school made it a place that was safe for us. And I, throughout the, the six years I was there, I never heard a teacher say a mean thing to a kid. Now, I know that sounds funny and maybe I'm forgetting something, but trust me, I'm not. You know, they, they treated us with respect, with compassion. I think they knew what we were going through, kind of. And they made it a place that, that uh, you know, kind of felt safe. Now, once again, looking back, I think that my feelings about school probably are what led me into the field. I mean, I had to take a kind of circuitous route to get to be a teacher because I wasn't really a college prep student when I was in high school. So I had to overcome that. But, I, you know, I'll talk about that in a minute. Um, when, when I... And I do, I, I posted on social the other day because it was teacher appreciation. We got the name of every single one of my teachers from kindergarten through fifth grade. Because wow. I don't forget, I don't forget them. Wow. Yep. That's yep. impressive. Yep. That, so that school had a big imprint on you. So it had to be, it had to be fairly positive. Um, what was the structure like compared to a normal school? Uh, was it uh, the same type of class structure? Was it, um, were you learning the same subjects? Uh, how, was it more vocational in, in aspects? Right. How would it run? That's a good question. The, the elementary school was like a typical public elementary school, you know, in terms of the procedure for the day, you know, the Pledge of Allegiance, sitting in rows and columns and, you know, the teacher instructing you in English and math and social studies and science. Um, but, but like there were teachers that would take it to a different level in terms of student interest and, and trying to inspire kids to be interested in things that they otherwise otherwise might not be. For example, my third grade teacher, Mrs. Curry, was a very avid bird watcher. So most, a lot of her lessons, she would use birds as kind of a way of uh, illustrating a certain point. Like, like if it was a math problem, you know, it wouldn't be two plus two. Well, if you have two robins and two cartons, you know, that kind of thing. And she, I'll never forget, she had this board, an electronic board uh, displayed in the classroom. And you would take a, 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 a a wand or, or I guess it's a diode or something like that. And you would stick it in like Cardinal. And then you'd look at the picture of the Cardinal and you'd stick that end in there. And then if you were right, a green light came on, you know, I mean, it was just cool. yeah, it was, it was, it was really cool. And then we kept like little journals about when we saw what bird we saw and all that kind of thing. But like, it just was a, it was a great place to be. Um, when, when I went through secondary school, uh, from sixth to 12th grade, you know, I was so seasoned into how the school ran and I had a pretty good circle of friends and it became a little bit easier, uh, you know, in terms of not being physically and verbally abused by house parents. Uh, you know, 
older students is another story because, you know, people today talk about bullying that takes place within the walls of the school. Well, you, where I was, it was happening in the home, you know, like the, when, when you were in ninth grade, you went out to what they called the senior division and you worked on a farm, which was a great experience also that I didn't appreciate then as much as I appreciate it now. And we milked cows and took care of calves and all that sort of thing. But the seniors would find different ways to antagonize all us young kids. And one of the things that they did was they, we had a big hay mound in the, in the big part of barn. See, there's a milking area, and then there's a, the area where they store all the hay and the straw that, that the animals need. The straw is for bedding, and the hay is what they eat, in addition to some other things. So in the summertime, and late in the summer, these barns would be filled up with straw and hay, and they probably went about you know, maybe 20, maybe 25 feet high. So the seniors, the bullies anyway, not all the seniors, but the bullies would make us go out there, go on top of the hay mound and begin to throw each other off, play king of the hill. Now, what they had done was they took about six inches of straw and put it on the floor. So like <laughs> if it did fall, you'd have something. Yeah. Yeah. Come that on. Doesn't really help too much, you know, <laughs> it was crazy. Or else they, they would they would play. Uh, we would play football. One of the great things about being with 20, 25 other guys is there's always a sport going on. There's always something to play, basketball, football, baseball, all that stuff. And, and they, would, they would have a team made up all of upperclassmen, and then the, the, the other team would be all the underclassmen, and they would just beat the hell out of us. You know, I mean, it was, all, it was tackle football, no gear. It, it, it was rough. But, um, you know, I got into the point where, you know, as I got into 10th, 11th, and then in my senior year where I really, really enjoyed the place. You know, I mean, I just I, I had my little niche. I had real tight friends that I'm still real tight with. Um, you know, I, I got a good education, but I found out before I went into 10th grade that I I didn't qualify for uh, college prep. I was told I wasn't college material, which at the time I probably wasn't. And um, they they also had a 80 percent of the boys in that school at that time. Uh, were in some sort of vocational program. They had an, they, they had uh, an electrical shop, a carpentry shop, sheet metal, printing, um, auto mechanics. Uh, I'm I'm probably forgetting something, but most most guys went into those things. There was only like about 22, 23 guys who went into to college prep. So my friends and I ended up in the business program because we didn't have the me mechanical aptitude for the shops and we didn't have the smarts for the <laughs> college prep. So we ended up in the business program, which actually was pretty cool because we learned bookkeeping. We learned shorthand. We learned typing. We learned about business machines, um, you know, business math. We ran like a little student bank, you know, it was practical. And uh, so, real quick, Chuck, uh, just to keep the listeners along the storyline here, you went to this school from four, all right. elementary school, middle school and now we're talking about later on high school right and you lived there the whole time and so you did right. normal school and then you had to choose right this is high school you had to right. choose what vocation you wanted to work with R right where they they would guide you to it you know because oh, they, okay. they would test you right so so this is pertinent because um at the time milton hershey would pay for your college education if you maintained like a B plus average, which I had, but because I didn't take the required courses, I wasn't able to get into a four year school. So they set me up at this uh, Pierce Junior College in Philadelphia. Uh, it was a two year school. 
I could live at home in my mother's house, which was about 10 miles from Philly. And I would take the train in and then, you know, go to school. Um, and I was studying business management at the time. That, by the way, is also where I happened to have met my wife, who has been, you know, by my side for like 50 years as, you know, my, well, it'll be 51, 51 years uh, in June. I'm sorry, May. Yeah, it's coming up. It's coming up. Congratulations, man. Yeah, thanks. So um, going to that school for the two years was great. I mean, I learned a lot of things, but I didn't know what to do after that. So I'm trying to answer the question about how I got into teaching. That's <laughs> just to keep everyone right. focused. Yeah. Awesome. So, so, uh, so um, after I graduated from the school, I became the manager of a dry cleaning enterprise down in Hamilton, New Jersey. At the time, I, I was living with a, another fellow graduate in, in South Jersey. So I found out that manager just meant you were the only employee, you know, so I'm <laughs> working at this place for pennies, literally. And, and I thought to myself, no, nah, nah, I, I have to figure something else out. But I didn't know how to do that. I didn't see one of the downsides of being raised the way I was is I didn't have any practical experience with how to be independent. You know, yeah, the regimentation was great. The accountability was great. All that was was a good thing. But it didn't help me in the real world. Like, be able to process things and, and make decisions and get advice and so forth. I, I never knew who to turn to. So the impact of that was that I got drafted because I was no longer in school. It was 1968. Vietnam War was raging. And um, I ended up, and I don't know why I was surprised, but I ended up getting drafted. Wow. So I got, I got drafted into the Marine Corps, uh, was put in the infantry eventually and, and went to Vietnam. And then when I came home is when I had the epiphany about ed education, because when I came home, once again, I had the associate's degree and I applied for a job with a insurance investigating company. And I was assigned to the life insurance division. And what I had to do was review applications of people made for insurance. You know how you get insurance, you got to fill out an application, right? And my job was to confirm all that information and uh, do an investigation on the person through various means. And at the time, it was pre-tech time. You know, you did everything by the telephone or, or drove out different places to interview people about the, the, uh, the applicants. I absolutely hated it because it had been up to me. Everybody that wanted insurance would have got insurance, you know. So I, I did some soul searching. I was watching a um, Monday night football game in my mom's house one night. And, you know, considering my plight and, and said to myself, I'm going to go back to school and I'm going to be a teacher. So I talked to my stepfather about it. And, I, and, he, and I, he said to me, he said, you know, that, that's a great career. He said, but don't expect to make a lot of money. But he said, you know what? That retirement thing, that pension, that's golden. Turns out he was right. <laughs> he was right. He was right. But anyway, uh, I the next day, I didn't go to work. I went over to Westchester, which is Westchester University at the time. It was State College. And um, I went to the admissions office and said, I want to start back to school. Uh, the next semester was started in January. This was like in November. And um, because I was a veteran, they took me right away, even though I didn't have the prerequisite courses. It just took me longer to finish. I had to make up some of the courses. So for three and a half years, I, I studied at Westchester. And during that time, 
um, Debbie and I got married. So, you know, that, that began the whole thing. And then when I graduated from Westchester, I got the job at, uh, in Freehold and, uh, that's where we started our story. Wow. That, that's how I ended up in education. It's unbelievable. I wanted to just ask you quickly, just cause, um, you, you ran over pretty quickly in the beginning. You said you were put in the Hershey school at age four. Um, did you have a big family at the time? Your mom, you said, was you know under the poverty line. That's why she had to put you in the school. Right. Uh, did you have any other family? And what was it like, you know, being away from your mom and um, just that experience in general? Because I don't think people understand fully the concept of leaving home at four years old until you're eighteen. Right. And then getting drafted. That's another. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's another thing. Well, you know. That, that's a really, really good point to bring out. Um, I didn't have a big family. My mother remarried and had two girls. So I had two half sisters and my two brothers were older. So I, I, my first couple years in the school, my brother was still there. The one that went back in. Um, so I saw my mom, my first couple years there, I just saw her for about two weeks in the summer. And once in a great while she would come up and, you know, what they would call take, take me out. Like, like I would be able to go with her for a day and, and then like a Saturday and a Sunday and then have to come back. But I, I still had to come back and sleep at the unit. So we call it the unit, you know, that night. Um, but she really couldn't afford to come up that much. And um, when, when I got a little bit older, if it hadn't been for my brother, I probably never would have made it home for vacations because when then we were allowed to go home around uh, the holidays and also in the spring, we went home for like a week or 10 days, something like that. So um, it, it was rough. I mean, I remember, I, I to this day, remember when she, the first day I was there, um, just crying, sobbing like a little baby when I finally, it finally hit me what was going to happen, that she was leaving me there. It wasn't the picture I had in my mind when she, when she gaslit me about like what my life was going to be like, you know? <laughs> And, Mom uh, gaslighting you at four years old. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, then, of course, every time you came back from vacation when you're a little kid, you're feeling a little bit homesick. You know, like like I, I in my like my granddaughters say, oh, you know, I'm homesick. Like, you don't even know what it is to be homesick. Come on, you just miss home. You're not homesick. <laughs> that's fine. That's true. That's true. Most yeah. people don't really know. No, they don't. They don't. But um. You know, like I said, it's just another one of those things that, that uh, you know, by overcoming it, you establish another brick in the wall, so to speak, for what you're going to be, you know, is what I look at it anyway. And the other thing, too, is um, that environment prepared me very well for the military training. OK, because you had you had regimentation, you had um, accountability. Uh, you had living quarters that involved engaging with other people your age, you know, that, that maybe you never had before. And a lot of the guys, my entire unit when I was in boot camp in Paris Island was made up of draftees. So none of us really wanted to be there. But there were guys, you know, from like rural areas of the country who had never been outside of their town, who now at the age of 18 or 19 you know, we're thrown into a situation with 82 other guys 
where you had to shower together, you know, you had to go to the bathroom without privacy. And a lot of guys were freaked out by that. I mean, really freaked out by it. But for me, it was like, yeah, it really wasn't any big deal. I mean, that part of it, I mean, the, the training was tough and all that. Um, but I think, and this was a pivotal point in my life because I think that the, the drill instructors there recognized after a couple of weeks that, you know, maybe this is a, somebody that, you know, we should give some leadership responsibilities to, you know, because I guess, I guess they just saw that, that, you know, I could function like I, you know, you know, I just had it together and I became what they call the platoon guide who, who basically like most of what we did beyond combat training and all that sort of thing was March. You know, we learned close order drill. It was a way of, you know, indoctrinating people into how to take orders and execute orders and that sort of thing. So the guide literally carries a guide on, which is a flag that everybody else has to orient toward so that we go where we're supposed to go. And it's also the person who is considered to be the recruit leader. So for the first couple of weeks, they kept firing people from the guide position. Like if we were jogging, you know, out on our, on our morning run and, and the guy dropped the guide on us. Oh, you're fired, you know, or fell behind. Oh, you're fired. You know? So finally when it was my turn, I kept it. Ah, you know, I, I, I kept it. And, and, you know, like, like the experiences that we went through uh, where they put emotional pressure on you, um, you know, or any other kind of pressure, like, like it wasn't any, it wasn't a big deal to me. Like I, I was able to, to, kind of fake it till I'm till you make it you know like I, I I knew what what game they were playing but I played along with it because I didn't want to be singled out as somebody who you know was resistant to things you know it's interesting that you say that because you had mentioned earlier that you learned how to play the game in the the Hershey school growing right. up as well you said that's why your brother couldn't finish their went right. out that's interesting that yeah. is an interesting concept yeah you know you get into environments where you you know you may not choose to be there or whatever um but you got to figure out what the agenda is. What's the plan here? What are people, you know, and I knew what, what they were trying to do. I mean, they, they wanted to make us, you know, people who, who would, you know, possibly uh, lose that natural tendency we have to not want to hurt each other. They had to debase, you know, the enemy and they had to, they had to make you just, you know, impersonally feel part like of a, of a killing machine, you know, that kind of thing. I, I know what the deal was with that. But uh, uh, long story short about boot camp is that I actually um, graduated as the outstanding Marine in my platoon, which involved the awarding of a dress blues uniform that the, the person that gets that award wears when the, when the group graduates. So I would I would stand with the, the colonel and the, and the general and all that, you know, and, and be the uh, outstanding. There were there were four platoons in a series. So there were four of us that were selected from our individual platoons. Sam, I want to tell you something. I've had a great life and done a lot of things. That's the single most significant personal accomplishment in my life. Unbelievable. Winning that award. You know why? Because it didn't involve being the best at anything, but with the exception of the classroom work, I mean, a lot of these guys really struggled. <laughs> but that, and there was a lot of classroom stuff, but that was easy for me. But like there were, you know, I was, wasn't the best uh, on the rifle range, but I wasn't bad. You know, there were there were guys from Kentucky that could probably shoot a squirrel between the eyes from 200 yards. I wasn't that guy. Uh, I wasn't the best in the physical training, but I was pretty good. You know, I, I could keep up. 
Um, where I excelled was in getting guys to do things that they might not want to do and in, in helping them, helping them kind of do that. And to the credit of these, these Marines, I, I feel like uh, they taught me that I could do things I didn't know I could do. And it gave me a, a sense of confidence that I've carried the rest of my life. Um, and I think it made me more likely to be successful in my career because I wasn't hampered by any feelings of insecurity or anything like that. I mean, you know, some people call that arrogance. I don't know. I mean, I probably have been described that way by some people, but I just think it comes from, uh, you know, knowing that there are always worse things that you could be going through and people say, Oh, you're so calm. You're so calm. Well, what's to get excited about every day I get out of bed as a bonus to me after my experiences, you know, <laughs> and uh, I try to always keep that perspective. It's a, uh incredible one's perspective to keep i try and keep the same perspective as well you know life is difficult uh with the social media nowadays everybody thinks that life is supposed to be smiles and, and sunshine all yeah. and that's just not the reality the reality right. is life is hard and you have to be tough um and i know you like this this topic so i want to jump into this uh becoming tough does require you to walk through the mud a little bit and, you know, you've had some great experience as a leader, starting from uh, maybe even in the Hershey School, but at least in the military, and then on to being a teacher and a principal, so on and so forth. Uh, how do you inspire? How do you guide people and help them understand that, you know, tough times are okay, and it's okay for me to be tough on you, because it's going to make you better. I feel nowadays that is lost. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think there's a couple of ingredients in that. Um, you know, one is that you have to be true to yourself first. You have to be who you are. And I think that people who come into uh, positions without any kind of, you know, self-evaluation or, or don't feel comfortable with who they are, or what they can do, don't really exude the kind of confidence that, that a good leader has. Um you, you, you also, I, I believe this firmly, you have to find the good that exists in everybody because the people who, who are struggling, there's something that they can do, just like, like a student, there's something that they can do that's going to turn them on and get them to a point where, you know, maybe they can improve on things or feel better about something. Um, quick story, when I was working in one of the schools, we, I inherited a position as a uh, coordinator of the paraprofessional program and that meant real complicated schedule i and i went into this halfway through the school year so there was a secretary who who basically ran the whole show with that and she was obsessed by it like she would just she would call people at four o'clock in the morning to make sure they were coming in as a substitute this that, and the other thing and everybody always talked bad about her you know like like she was like a running joke oh she's crazy she's crazy and and somebody said it to me one day i said you know what she might be crazy but she cares she cares about what she's doing and she cares about, you know, getting it done right. So, you know, you, you have to try to find that when you're when you're working with people who are all different, coming from different backgrounds and all that sort of thing. You're not going to build consensus about a whole lot, but you can find the good in each one of them and then play to that. Like Mrs. Curry and the birds, you know, play to what what they like or what they can do, you know, and then be honest with them. You know, one of the things that's lacking is honesty, you know, like. You, when you have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with somebody that could be difficult for them to hear, you can't sugarcoat that and you can't be mean, you know, like 
if, if you have a teacher who who is mistreating kids or, or you know doesn't have the priorities straight or whatever the case may be, you know you have to set up a, a scenario where they can understand what would be different if they did it this way. Like how would that how would that make the kids uh, respond and how would that make you feel? You know, um, you know basically that's what it comes down to. Just be your be your have a plan, have a mission. You know, know what your vision is. Like I, when I became the principal of Memorial, my vision was to have a school where kids love to be in middle school. You know, that that, that was all. And they were going to be empowered to do certain things that would make them love it there. And, you know, they would be free to ask questions, to challenge authority. Because if you can't, as a leader, if you can't explain why you made a decision or why you want to impose a certain regulation of conduct. If you can't explain it, then you probably shouldn't be doing it. I'll give you an example. One of the things we did to develop a more student-friendly school was to allow middle school kids to dress up for Halloween. The other two middle schools didn't do it, and they were pissed off at me because I was doing it. It was making them look bad. I said, well, then maybe you should try to look good, you know? Um, but in order to make this work, I, I had to get together with the kids, and I got in each lunch period after sixth, seventh and eighth graders ate, I would speak to them and, and uh, I, I would tell them, you know, first of all, everybody says this can't be done. And the reason they say it can't be done is because you're not mature enough to accept responsibility to do it right. So let's make sure we send the right message to everybody who thinks that we can't do it right. And then I would explain to them about the no masks, no depictions of violence, no inappropriate dress, blah, blah, blah. And then I always threw this one thing into it, and there would be no cross-dressing. There would be no boys dressed as girls. And then I just left that lay there. And because I, you know, welcomed challenges to my authority, sure enough, one kid raises his hand. He said, Mr. Welsh, why, why the cross-dressing? And I said, like, here's why, Timmy. In my experience, and I was in high school for 25-plus years, any young man who dressed as a girl on Halloween dressed in a way that we wouldn't allow the girl to dress. Now, if you want to dress as Raggedy Ann, be my guest. I will make that one exception, but that's the way it's going to be done. So once again, give them the opportunity. I knew why I was saying, and that some people from, might find that controversial. I don't know, but I just felt like, you know, th there are certain standards that have to be met. And if we're going to make sure people understand that we can do this, this right, then everybody has to follow these particular standards. And I let them participate. In other words, when we set up the, the, the um, list of things that you could or couldn't do, the kids basically agreed to that before we even put it down on paper. They knew. Kids know. You know? It's, uh, it's pretty interesting how, when you talk about the way you, you were leading your schools, how you, you put a big emphasis on um, making the kids part of these decisions and yeah. putting the kids first instead of instead of your ego or your perception right. of other people first. Right. The most gratifying thing about it was interacting with students. I mean, uh, you know, and understanding that this was something that was going to you know make a difference in their life, possibly if, if we did the right thing, all of us, the, you know, the staff and, and and, you know, most of the staff that I had kind of bought into it, but the ones that didn't, you know, I wasn't going to change everybody. Like, I'm not going to say that, like I, I went one time on a bus ride down to the Franklin Institute on a field trip 
spent the entire bus ride with a seventh grade science teacher trying to get her to understand that the essence of science is failing and trying again, failing and trying again. Because she had the kids do this project where they drop a parachute with a rock off the second floor, and then they would get a grade based on how long it took to get down there. You know, obviously, the longer it takes, the higher your grade because you made the parachute right. I said, well, why, why would you do that? I said, what if, if, a, if a kid had the thing last three seconds and you wanted it to last six, how about giving the kid an opportunity to try to refigure the thing out? You know, that's what science is. But, you know, she was real rigid in her thinking. I, I, I mean, I wasted probably an, an hour and a half on the way down and an hour and a half on the way back. But I'll be doggone if I was not going to recognize, you know, what I saw as, as a, you know, malpractice, basically, you know. So a big thing, a big trend I see when you're talking is is your insistence on on telling the truth, like being honest, right. which I don't you, you have a lot of people in today's world who are hesitant to, to be say what needs to be said. Right. Um, do you think that has something to do with just the times? Do you think it has to do with the fact that you went to the Hershey school and then you went to the military and, and then you pursued education? So for you, it was always like, no, this is how it's done. Then you went to the Marines. This is how it's done. So right. then when you got into the school system. That's how you ran. Or do you think it was just the times are different? Well, that's, that's an interesting question. I, I don't, I think that, you know, being in Milton Hershey and the military set me up, but I don't think I ran a military type operation. You know what I mean? I think, you know, my, my focus was on the humanity of it, but I also had, when I was a teacher at, in the Freel regional system, I had some great mentors, okay. you know, people. And, and uh, there was uh, one, there were a couple really that, that made a, had a big influence on me. One was a, um, a guy who was, who was assistant superintendent. And in fact, he was the first guy that interviewed me when I applied for the position. At that time, he was the principal at one of the high schools. Uh, his name was Walt Zuber. And he, he to me, was the epitome of professionalism and, and honesty and integrity. Um, another one by the name of Jim Janarone was a social studies uh, department supervisor who, who was the same way, you know. And these are these are men that I modeled myself after. And, I, and you know, as well as I do, that you're going to find things in people that you admire that you say, hey, you know what, that that's a great model for me, you know, and you're going to, you know, at least reflect on some of those kinds of things. And you're going to also find people who do everything wrong. And, and you say to yourself, I'm never going to do that. I mean, I know. I mean, that was particularly true when I was a coach. You know, I, when I worked with other coaches, I'd see things and I'd just say, that, that's not the way that should be done. And I know that. You know, sometimes I maybe didn't handle those kind of things in the way I, I should have. But, uh, you know, nonetheless, you know, you, you learn from the things that are done well by people that you observe. And there's, you know, things that you learn from people not doing so well. You know, what do you think? What do you think was inside those people? Or do you think it was just something you noticed that uh, attracted you to them? Like these mentors you're talking hmm. about, you know, what makes a leader? Like what, what makes them shine? You know, because you seem... Um, the short conversations we have, I'm intrigued. I want to listen to what you're saying. And so if you were taking stuff from these other men, they had to be somewhat either interesting or they had to be compelling in some manner. And I believe most leaders are, you know, is there anything you can say on that? You know, what makes a leader? Yeah. I I, I don't know that there's note taking involved or anything like that. Uh, But like when you engage with people, 
Like, for example, Walt Zuber. Now, when he was assistant superintendent, he, he had that office when I was appointed the head football coach at Freehold Township, which is something I really wanted. To, I wanted to be a head football coach. He personally came over to the school at the borough to tell me that I got the job. See, that, that you know, I mean, I had already admired the guy. Right? Little details like that. Right. You know, I, I, I admired him, you know, for the way he communicated with people. You know, uh, he, he was in head of personnel. So, you know, there were a lot of messages and communication that came out of his office. And I just liked the way he communicated. There was no bullshit, you know, just, you know, he, here's what's going to happen and here's why. Uh, he also happened to have been a basketball referee of some note because he was he was an army veteran, too, by the way. And he was so decisive and demonstrative about the calls that he made. Nobody ever argued with the guy. You know, he had a short buzz cut and he was a physical presence, you know, and, and then he just he he had it together. Um, you know, with with uh, Jim Janarone, it was the same thing. Like he 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 just exuded a certain thing that I just thought made him a good leader, like his ability to communicate with people, uh, the way he interacted with people, the positivity, you know, that he brought when we had meetings and you would listen to him talk and his willingness to stand up to what he considered to be things that were done wrong, which, you know, I don't want to really get into it because there are a lot of people that are familiar with some of the politics behind Freehold Regional over the years. And, you know, he, he stood for what was right and he did it publicly and he did it at risk to himself. You know, so I, I, I really admired him for that. And your father's another one, too. You know, I mean, a, a guy who, who when I'm around him, you know, I know that there's something that's going to happen. that's going to make me say, man, it's just great. <laughs> you know, that's good. You know, the the. And I know him probably better than I knew those other two guys, but we're more, more I think, peers than, than uh, you know, me leading him or him leading me. Um, just the integrity that comes out of every conversation I've ever had with him and the idea of doing the right thing and inspiring other people to do the right thing. I, I don't know that there's only but a handful of people maybe, you know, that I've been around that can do that. And you've been around so many people. I just... My, yeah. my my dad blows my mind every day, man. He's yeah. just because I look at the the life he's lived. You know, he's someone who very similar to you um, had a very difficult upbringing, uh, lived in a poor family with a lot of siblings, um, one who was mentally challenged. And, you know, um, he, he didn't have the the first shower he ever took was in college. He used to wow. wash in a bucket outside. And, you know, he he never tells these stories now, but. I mean, uh, back when I was growing up, he tells me stories now and that adversity, man, it just made you guys tough. You know, right. it did. It made you tough. And I want to tie your whole story together here because we were also talking about leadership. You didn't have you, your father passed away. You mm -hmm. didn't. Have, you went to a school where there wasn't one figure you're following. There's a bunch of different caretakers. You got teachers. You got the parents of the house. You maybe have administrators that you cross paths. Then you go to the military. You got this got you got um this sergeant and this general and there's never one person so you it sounds like in yourself had to find the leader inside you to become successful you weren't given anything you know you you really had some adversity you know most people especially i feel now today's my generation are always acting like the victim and i'm mm -hmm. always i'm always trying to i'm having conversations with people my age and i feel like i'm your age 
And I'm like, guys, I'm like, it's in, it's inside, it's inside you, you know? So I don't know, so to tie this together, that leadership aspect, how could you tell somebody or how did you become the leader of your own life after going through so much hard stuff? Well, what one thing I think is to uh, be observant, to know what inspires you. Like, like, like if you're, is there a leader that inspires you? And if so, what are the characteristics that that person has? Is it, is it the empathy they have? Is it their willingness to, uh, to make sure um, they structure a lesson the way it's going to appeal to you or something like that. But, but actually um, quick story when I was a senior at Milton Hershey School, um, our whole unit got moved out to a brand new uh, building out uh, in the country. And um, like, once again, every two weeks, the house parents would go away for the weekend and we'd have these substitute house parents come in. Now, the house parents I had when I was a, when I was a high school student weren't like abusive people. Um, they weren't on. They, they weren't like on top of everything that we did, but by the same token, they were very aloof and, and, and you know, kind of soulless, you know, they never said to you, you know, how school going or you know, the old man never went to a single football game I played, you know, but, but that's okay. But every other weekend, this couple would come on the site and the guy was a graduate of Milton Hershey school. So he knew, right. He knew. He would play softball with us. He would sit around, have a campfire, and tell us stories about when he was at Milton Hershey School. Uh, he would he would throw a couple of us. We'd take orders for sub, you know, subs or hoagies, and he'd take us in his pickup truck up to Arntz, you know, to to get subs and stuff like that. And and then Sunday night would come, and they'd be gone, and and the uh, house parents would be back. But but here's the thing: regardless of who was on duty, whether it was the soulless, you know, kind of uncaring person you know, that was responsible for us most of the time, or Mr. Fonestock, who, who really showed that he cared about us, regardless of who was on duty, the freaking cows got milked, the job got done. So to me, that the, the lesson in leadership there is, is like, the way you conduct yourself should be at the at service to others, because they're the ones doing the work, you know, so the work's going to get done either way. So don't be don't be a jerk, you know, don't don't be mean to people. You know, help them find a way. And then and then the other thing, when, when I was in the Marine Corps, um, I was, you know, stationed right outside of a major city that was responsible for the security of the airport. And we did a lot of patrolling. I was in the infantry. I was a machine gunner. And the first commanding officer, you know, uh, of, of our company that I entitled was a guy who later became very famous. He was a general, a three-star general in the Marine Corps. And when the Iraq War first took took place uh he was a commentator on all the news shows all the time his name was van riper and he was a lieutenant when no i'm sorry yeah he was a lieutenant when i was uh in vietnam he was our company commander so he commanded uh, about 50 to 60 guys depending on you know how depleted the, the company was and everybody talked about you know how uh how nasty he was and um he made us walk around with fixed bayonets and polished boots and stuff like that. I mean, it just like was real, real hard ass. And I had heard all these stories about him before I ever even met him. And one day, are you allowed to curse on this? Yeah. 
Oh, okay. So one day, uh, well, I'm telling the story, so I got to quote the guy accurately, right? Absolutely. Let it fly. <laughs> so, so I was walking with a couple of my buddies down to a uh, mess hall at this one combat base we had, and he's walking the other way. Now, this is a guy I heard all about. He's walking with his XO officer or whatever, and I guess I was staring at him, right? So he turns around after we pass him by, and he says, hey, Marine, come here. And he was pointing to me. So, yes, sir. So I went up, and he said, Son, he says, uh, if you're going to eye fuck me, salute me. If you're not going to salute me, don't eye fuck me. <laughs> well, okay. You know, I mean, there in, in that environment, maybe there's a certain, you know, argument that says that that's the kind of leadership that you need. Um, I don't buy it. One of the people that replaced him was this guy, Captain Stanick, who was a Korean War veteran and a little bit older guy. And he once, like Mr. Fonestock, he treated us in a way that made us feel like we were valued. You know, we weren't just pawns. Like he, he did things tactically that wouldn't put you at risk. You know, uh, and eventually it cost him. He he lost that command, and he ended up being a. get a chance to evaluate leadership unless you're in a situation where leadership is critical, you know? So that those, those are some of the things, the lessons that I, I, I look back on now and, you know, in my mentorship programs with, with other administrators that I was involved with for a while. And when I talk to teachers, if, if issues like that come up, you know, I, I, I kind of tell you a briefer version of these stories, but like there's always somebody that can teach you something. You know, when I, when I was growing up, Sam, I was just like a regular, like mediocre kid. You know, nobody ever noticed anything I did when I when I uh, when I played sports. I was an average athlete. You know, I mean, as I get older, I was better. But, you know, I was I was an average athlete. Uh, I wasn't a captain of a team or a star. I was a defensive lineman in, in, in football, you know. Um, but until that award was given to me, I never realized the capacity I had that I had for being excellent. I didn't realize that, but that made me, I, I, I proved excellence in one of the most rigorous demanding environments you can possibly imagine in life. Now you train athletes, you, you train people, you know, you know about, you know, how, how to motivate people, what it costs to be good at something. Oh yeah. So, so I was recognized in an environment that is the epitome of all that. And, and I did it, you know, and I, I think that speaks for itself, you know, and that's why, why that was such a special thing for me, because I was nothing until I did that, really. I, I, mean, I think most people are the average Joe, and I actually think the people who, um, who get to, let's say, I'll use just the term the top, um, I don't think anybody's above anybody else, but we'll talk about the people who gain more notoriety or excel in more life. Uh, they are mostly average people. Sometimes you have the genetic freak or the special person, but uh, odds are they're an average person who was just stubborn enough to not give up. Right. And they just learn along the way. And I believe in my own life, well, I know in my own life, I am just an average person. <laughs> but um, most personal trainers, I've been doing this 11 years now. It's wild to say that because I'm only 28 years old. I've been doing this 11 years. Yeah. Most people quit in a year and a half. That's the the rate uh, going rate for personal trainers is a year and a half. And uh, 
I was not successful for the first four or five years, uh, four years really. And then the past, you know, six, seven years, because I've been so stubborn, I'm, I'm now the expert in this field. People come to me. I don't have to look for people anymore, mm -hmm. uh, but I'm not special. I'm definitely not the smartest. Um, I wasn't the best athlete. I just persisted. I pers right. persisted, persisted. And I don't know if you can talk upon that, if that had effect on your life. Um, but because you are now retired, I want you to reflect, you know, is there something missing now for these kids? Cause I feel like a lot of kids I train, uh, between the ages of 12 and 25, I don't, your life was set up, you know, by the time you were 25, basically. Oh, without question. I was a married man and, you know, yeah, what's, what's different is it the lack of persistence on one thing is it the education system you're retired you're out of it so you can look back yeah. and be like this is this yeah. is what's going on i think i think it's a combination of uh an education system that lost its way and an erosion of parental skills and a lack of willingness among some people to actually parent their children as a, like, like the thing is like, if you, if you want your kid to have a good life, a lot of people think that means you got to give them things or protect them from anything that might harm them. Uh, you know, like the bullying thing, you know, like what, when I was raised, this, Milton Hershey was a laboratory for bullying. You learned how to deal with it. Nobody was coming to your aid. There was no HIB law, you know, there was, there was nobody that was going to say, hey, you know what, we'll get you out of this. You had to figure it out. You, you, you had to learn how to fight and pick those fights. You had to learn how to, you know, talk, be smooth talker, and, which I used to rely on more than anything else. Or you, you had to just be willingness to run and be a chicken. You know what I mean? Like, like they're just you, nobody was going to save you from that. Now, today, generally speaking, parents want to save their kids from any uncomfortable thing to come to cross it. So therefore, how can they ever? learn to be persistent how can they ever learn to deal with adversity and learn from adversity and become stronger because of it? how can they be resilient if they never really have anything that challenges them so i, I think that's a that's one of the things that that's changed over the years you know it's great that kids are valued more maybe we were we were seen and not heard to a certain extent but by the same token you have to you have to lay a path for your kid and and make them live by the expectations that you have for what is supposed to, what they're supposed to do. The other thing is the educational system, and and I saw this happen rel relatively late in my career when when um, uh, I don't want to get political, so I'm just going to say that the the focus of education changed from the whole child, like treating the, the kid giving the kid what he or she needed to be successful and change to reflecting the success of the school by how well the kid did on a, <clears throat> excuse me, on a standardized test. And over the past, I'm going to say probably 15 years, that has completely, I think, distorted the role of education in, in the life of the student because everything, especially at the elementary level, because everything is about that number, what number, what, how, they, how are they going to do on the test, how are they going to do on the test, not what do they need to succeed. There's an old saying, you don't, you don't grow a pig by measuring it, you know, you feed it. And, and that, that measurement stuff got like way out of hand, I think. That's a great saying. 
You don't measure. <laughs> That's great sex. <laughs> yeah. So, oh, you know, those, the, the combination of those things has created an environment that, that here, here's an example. Like, like and, and I'm sure your father could speak to this probably with great authority. But I did experience it a little bit, especially in, in my role uh, as an interim when I, you know, kind of got to the fringe of where this stuff started to happen. You know, there's more and more kids today that challenge authority in inappropriate ways, you know, scream at teachers, you know, call people names, you know, like there's no, there's no boundaries. And one of the reasons for that is because their parents let them do it to them. So if I can, if I can call my father a jerk, why can't I call my teacher a jerk? I don't care about that teacher, you know? And if that, if the behavior goes uncorrected, then that invites the student to act in a certain way. See, this is this is uh, one of the things that frustrates me about leadership on the national level. You know, our government. You know, there's nobody honest. Nobody tells you the truth. Nobody nobody has a stand a standard of conduct that they follow that is really in tune with what their job is supposed to be. Oh no, we just and when off. when they when they constantly. Uh, you all right? Yeah, we cut I'm off muted? for a quick second. Um, so you were saying the government uh, is lack of honesty. Right, right. You know, there's no there's no leadership that, that you can look to to say, hey, you know what? That, that's a great vision. You know, I, I think that's going to really be something that's going to help our country. There's nothing like that. It's the act, actually the reverse. And there's a lot of things that go into this. If you go into a cable TV, you know, 24 hour news cycle, whatever you want. But all they do is yell at each other and call each other names. You know, yeah, so yeah. again, that's what our our kids see that, you know, that's OK, then, I guess, because so and so did it. The, the guy that has this, you know, this office or that, you know, they they call people names. Or why can't I call them names? There's no standard of conduct that is, is you know, worth worth uh, watching or, or, you know, voting for. There's just nothing other than than ideology. And, and if I don't have the same ideology as you, I'm going to call you names and then you're going to call me names. And then, you know, meanwhile, nothing, nothing good, nothing good happens. That's, you know, exactly, that's exactly what's going on. It's, yeah. it's upsetting to see because we've been talking this whole podcast about, you know, um, leadership and integrity and, and overcoming difficult times and, um, you know, the country itself. And I don't, I don't stand on uh, as a political figure, but you know, I can voice my opinions freely is the fact that, you know, there is no integrity right now. No one's being truthful. They just want to get in the office and, and mm-hmm. that's it. It's all about status. There's something that you had mentioned that I also have experience with talking about the lack of parenting um, with kids and how that is causing, you know, maybe um, to reference one of my clients, Jesse, uh, he says failure to launch. And because uh, he used to work with some um, younger kids or not kids, but people who were getting out of the military, but then not getting a job, they were failure to launch. He alludes to the fact that we're delaying the growing process of kids by not giving them the adversity they need. And what I see in my personal training business is the parent is always like, I'll do it for you. Mm, Right. That's what goes. I'll do it for you. And I also see it in adults. Um, Nowadays, the app does it for you. You don't have to cook your food. You just DoorDash it, okay? The people food shop for you. Everything is done for you. No one has to do anything for themselves. And I think when you allow yourself 
too many things of what you like or too many things that are easy, you actually end up lost. You actually end up as a weaker, less resilient, less capable human being. And is there anything in your life um, that you've been able to maintain? Maybe it's a habit, a, a lifestyle, a mindset where you're like, restrict yourself and you're okay with people telling you, you know, you can't have that right now or you need to do this. Well, you know, I, I think that uh, one of the things that that uh, would probably be indicative of that is the whole idea of, of self-denial and, and uh, you know, pushing yourself physically. Um, you know, for 30, probably 35 years, uh, you know, I've been uh, an avid fitness buff. You know, um, the level of fitness has varied according to what job I have from time to time. But like, you know, and my motivation at the time, you know, when I started this was because I wanted to be a good example to the kids I was coaching, you know, so I would I would, you know, participate in 10K races and things like that. And then, you know, eventually got into weight training, did a lot of powerlifting when I when I was a head coach because I wanted to be an example to the kids. Um, you know, I, I think that now now my motivation is just to live as long as I can, you know, but I'm still I'm still doing things with intensity but it's just a different kind of thing. Like now it's all about balance and functional training and, you know, that sort of thing. And, and spinal stability, because I have some issues with that, you know, I've been working real hard to, to, and, and I like doing that. Like, I don't like having the problem, but I, I, I like working with a solution to it, you know? Uh, and it's kind of like different from anything I've else that I've done, but I think it's an example of, of, you know, having something that you can focus on that goes just beyond the day to day. Like this is, this is a lifestyle. This is, I'm not training so that I can, uh, you know, look good in Hawaii or anything like that. You know, when we go on a trip and then become a slob later, I'm training because it makes me feel better and feel good. And I want to be able to, you know, I, I joined a gym uh, right after the uh, pandemic explosion was over because the gym that I went to uh, got sold and I'd been going there for 30 some years, 35 years, maybe. So I went to this local chain gym, here in, in Howe Township. And, uh, you know, it was not, I mean, it was a lot cheaper than where I was going before. They had a nice array of equipment and so forth, but they didn't really have any, what I could see, any any personal attention to anything, which was fine by me because I, I don't I don't mess with anybody when you go in there. I just focus on what I'm doing. I'm not on my phone, that's for sure. I saw this guy yesterday on a, on a chest press. I do all the my presses and stuff seated because that's better for me in terms of my physical condition. And the guy was sitting there literally having a phone conversation you know, on the, on the, on the machine. Now, usually it's the 18, 19 year old kids that are, that are scrolling between sets and then they forget how long they're scrolling. So, you know, I'm one time there's two or two or three of them, you know, older guys standing around bullshitting over a, a, a machine. I finally went up to him. So you guys waiting for menus or something? I mean, is, is there any way I can get in here and get a set or two? In, you know? It's so crazy. Yeah. So, so anyway, the story I was going to tell you was that, that when we enrolled in this gym uh, a couple of nights later, the manager of the gym called me. He happened to be a, a student at Memorial when, when, when I was principal there. So he knew who I was. He said, oh, yeah, Mr. Welsh, this is Mark. He said, uh, but I, no, let me back up. I don't think he remembered that he had talked to me a couple of days before. I thought he just had a client list and he was going down a list to talk to people about what their goals were and how they were going to be set up with a program. I think they were hustling uh, this one little program that they have. So he says to me, well, what are your, what are your goals? I said, well, to be honest with you, Mark, my goal is that when I'm 80 years old, I'm going to begin to be able to get in and out of a car and drive it properly. 
<laughs> he said, well, I guess we got nothing for you. Because <laughs> I knew what I was doing, you know. Yeah. But I've, I've always kind of, you know, been into fitness and, uh, you know, tried to, to make the, you know, the most out of myself, you know, that way. Because I think it's a good, it's in a good part of your lifestyle is to take care of yourself that way. And, and also fitness, um, I can speak to this because it's just true across the board. It is a, a form of adversity that you literally put on yourself right. on a right. daily basis. Like it's a reminder that, you know, when you go through something tough, even if it's for a short period of time, you actually feel better and more accomplished at the right. end of it. It's so many people don't get that. They, they just they just think about it as something painful that they have to go through. They don't they don't really see the big picture when it comes to exercise. It's a giant form of accomplishment. Now, real quick, I don't want to hold you for so long, but uh, you're just an interesting guy. So I like asking you this question. You mentioned <laughs> that you did some 10Ks, 5Ks, powerlifting. Um, yeah. That's my that's my world, baby. So I got to ask, you know, what were you doing? What, what was your powerlifting plan or were you kind sure. of? Doing, yeah. Oh, powerlifting. yeah, yeah. I'll be happy to talk to you about it. Now, once again, my motivation was really to bring a program to my school that would benefit uh, my athletes or the athletes in the school. Because when, when I was the head football coach, I ran a program that I allowed anybody to participate in. You know, I, I you know, any, any it could be a soccer player, basketball, anybody that wanted to do this could do it because it wasn't during the season. But um, I, I came across this guy uh, down at Tom's River East who um, had this, he, he was a power lifter and he had this program that I thought would fit into our needs because of the equipment that was necessary didn't have to have a whole lot of space and stuff like that. And it was all based on, on, uh, you know, power lifts. Now what, what he, he focused on the bench press because of, you know, how you lock out, you know, as a blocker or a defender, um, the squat for, you know, overall, you know, hip flexibility and strength and hang cleans, which is, uh, not the clean and jerk or anything clean and press, just, just a hand clean. Like where you, you bring the, you bring the bar up to just above your knees and then you snatch it. And then, because that's the explosive movement, when you roll your hips through that, that's the explosive movement that takes place when you tackle somebody, when you box somebody, you know, any, anything that has to do with football or any, any athletic endeavor for that matter. So in order to appreciate the importance of how the program was structured, I did it myself. So it's basically now, sometimes I might, I might forget, but it's basically a 12-week cycle that you go through where two days a week you do, um, you, you do your bench press and your shoulders. And then two days a week you do your, your hand cleans and your squats. And you start, when you first start, let's take the bench press, for example. When you first start, you're going to set up like a Russian pyramid. You're going to go like uh, 12 reps, 10 reps eight reps, eight reps, then 10 reps, and then 12 reps. So you're, you're, you know, you're really just trying to learn what your baseline is, like, like how much can I lift? So if you, if you're on your second set of eight and you don't quite getting it up, then the, the bar up, then, you know, maybe you better take five pounds off, you know? So then the second time you do it, you have a better idea about where you need to be. So then you do that for four weeks. And each time that last eight, eight reps uh, part of it, you add some weight to it. That's the only one that you add weight to. So then the next four weeks, you're going to do 10 reps to warm up, and then you're going to do four sets of five and then a 10 rep set. Now you're doing a little bit more weight and a little less reps. And then the final, the, the fourth time, 
you're going to do um, threes. You go, you go 10 and then you're going to do all threes so that you get down there where you, where it's pretty heavy. And then after that's over, you do a single set rep, uh, single rep max to see where you stand. So that's your baseline for the next cycle, which is starting all over again. So if you look and you keep records and you look back at where you were, you can see how much strength you've gained, you know, by comparing the last week of threes with the next session of uh, eights. It's unbelievable. It was, it, it, I mean, I look at pictures of myself. I say, Jesus Christ, I have a load, man. You know, ah, great. But, but uh, you know that um, it, it was it was very adaptable to what what our needs were in the high school. You know, because in the summertime when the kids would come in and lift, you know, we, we had like four nights a week we could do it. Now, here's the thing: the, there were kids who didn't want to bother with that. They wanted to train on their own or whatever the case may be. And I never really fought people on that, but I would just tell them, I said, just remember that, that you didn't want to be a part of this, you know, because when it comes time to make decisions about things, that, that could be something that works against you. I was very honest about that. I think so, it's incredible that you, you put that in that school system. What year was that? Oh, that was back in 89, 90. Yeah. I, I mean, I became the head coach here 86. I didn't get this program going probably till 1990. Yeah. Because there wasn't a big pop. Weightlifting was more of an underground thing, especially in schools. It wasn't a big thing. So for you to even get that in there was. Oh, oh then it was, though. Oh, it was? It started. Yeah. yeah. Now, when I played back in the 60s, that, no, I mean, there was they didn't know anything about it. They didn't, we didn't do any kind of training like that. The coaching really wasn't what it is now or even what it was when I when I was coaching. You know, the coaches just like blew the whistle and, went, you know, they set up a they would set up an offense and a defense, but they would never teach you on the technique. You know, like how to defeat a trap, you know, if you're a defensive tackle, you know, they, they just didn't they didn't show they didn't show you a picture of it. like they, they wouldn't put you in a situation in practice where this is what you're going to see. So when this guy does this, this is what's going to happen. They never did that. They didn't coach us. I love the fact that that you did the program with the athletes. Like it just again, it shows that type of leader that that you are and that more people should aspire to be is the guy who walks the walk, it doesn't just talk yeah. the talk. I mean, that's like me, um, you know, I, anybody I train, I have the ability to train because I've been in their shoes, you know, if right. someone right. come in and run an ultra marathon, I did that. You want to run a marathon? I did that. You want a power lift? I yeah. did that. I set state records for that. You know, you want to do an obstacle race? I did a bunch of them. So it's one of those things where, where I, you know, I'm a big proponent of, of walking the walk. There's people out there who have pedigree higher example for me of education in terms of exercise science but they have no experience mm -hmm. and, and true knowledge. You know, you can have information, but you don't truly know something in my opinion until it's implemented, uh, implemented facts are facts, but knowledge is, is a, a, bl a blend, a synergy between facts and experience, you know, information. Well, it, it also puts you in a position to speak authoritatively, you know, on what it is you're trying to impart on the athletes that you train. See that, you know, people who just rely on, you know, book learning or whatever can talk the talk. But like you said, they can't walk the walk. And unless you do that, you, you really can't speak from the same level of authoritativeness, you know. And it's, it's interesting because <clears throat> when you gain that true authority, at least in my experience as a trainer, I've been able to take myself down to my client's level as opposed to if I just had the information without the experience – I always felt like I was talking down upon people because I didn't actually experience what they were trying to accomplish. But the fact that I did experience it and I had the knowledge, I, I'm, I speak to people at their level now because I know where they are. 
Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. That makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, it's just an interesting concept because, like you said, especially with the government and all this stuff, you know, they're always talking down and they're always talking. It's like, you don't know. You know, you haven't been yeah. in the middle class shoes. <laughs> yeah, know. like, like you know, and, and from a leadership perspective, you say, is this the best we can do, really? Oh, I'm, my God, I know. It's ridiculous. This, this, this is the cream of the crop in America. When I was a kid, it used to be, you know, I mean, like whether you agreed or disagreed with the policies, people conducted themselves as mature human beings. You know, it wasn't all about gotcha and calling people names and stuff. I, I, just, it just I, think all the best people, I think all the smartest, best people in the world look look upon that and say, I don't want any part of it. So then we're left <laughs> with the crappy people that we're left right. with. Right, right, right. Yeah, um, I might be right about that. Yeah. I yeah. wanted to just end on a couple things here. Thank you so much for your time again. Sure. Uh, My pleasure. You have had a wild story. I, I, I could talk to you for hours, man. Seriously. No wonder you and my dad get along. You guys probably talk, share stories for hours. Um, what, what's just some advice you can give to anybody listening, you know, to just, you know, stick, stick to your guns. You know, you seem like a guy who no matter what happened, you just did what you wanted to do. And I admire that. You know, I really do. I admire that. Yeah, well, you know, like, like I think the, the best advice I could give people is, is the first thing is to be honest, to be true to yourself and, and be honest with others. But the other, the other thing is, is have a vision and then develop a plan. You know, like I got drafted because I didn't have a plan. And that, and that was a big, big lesson for me. And the consequences could have been like really, really bad, severe, you know? So like organize yourself in a way that puts you on the right path. Don't, don't just want something to happen. You know, what, what is it that they say? Like, like, uh, a goal without a plan is just a dream, you know, like, like do the ABCs. Like, this is what I have to do to get to that particular point. You see it all the time, you know, people locked in from the age of 20 something to for the rest of their life into a routine that doesn't satisfy them because they never do anything to change it, you know, and then, and then be able to adjust to the, the curveballs that are thrown your way be able to wait it out or whatever. And I can, in my case, the curveball was thrown to me when I, when I was at Frio Regional, got passed over for those jobs. That, I saw the writing on the wall, man. I was out of there. You have to have the courage to bet on yourself. You know, oh, you're going to lose all this tenure. You're crazy. This and that. Uh -uh. I knew I was going to be good at it. And I wasn't going to be denied the opportunity to do it. You know, bet on yourself. That's uh, what I, I love. That's one of my mantras. That is it. I said, yeah. the only way I'm going to fail is if I fail myself and it ain't happening. <laughs> there it is. You're so much like your dad, man. I feel like I'm talking. Dude, isn't that weird? Everybody says that. I'm like, oh, it's true. It's true, man. <laughs> it's nuts. And then lastly, uh, actually, it relates to my dad, actually, this last question I have, because he's retiring this year. I know. And you, you're retired. And I want to know what, what have you been doing in your retirement? I'm just, I want I, I like to, to know that. I want to know. Well, you know, uh, for a while, I was working on and off, so that that kind of would interrupt the routine that I had. But like, what what I do now is devote myself entirely to my physical and mental well-being and taking care of my family and doing the things that, that I have to do to make people around me happy. Um, in terms of my I, my cognitive abilities, every day I sit down for an hour, an hour and a half. I read the newspapers. I do all kind of word games. Uh, do crossword puzzles. I do things to engage the part of my brain that, you know, maybe could go fallow a little bit, like if you don't really engage it. And then um, physical training, like I, you know, I walk three to five miles 
pretty much four times a week, maybe sometimes more. Um, that's part of my back rehabilitation program. In fact, I did a five miler with your dad not too long ago. We awesome. did a, a five mile around the reservoir and how. Um, and then I also spend probably three or four times a week, uh, you know, at the gym working on um, mostly on the mat, doing my my stability exercises, isometric uh, abdominal work, you know, all that sort of thing. And then, you know, a little bit of little bit of seated bench press. Um, I do some upper back exercises uh, and some leg work. But my whole thing now is just to stay limber and, and as healthy as I can. I have some I have some pretty significant physical challenges that I'm facing, but uh, and it gets me down once in a while. But I know that if I don't continue to do what I'm doing, they're going to be worse. You know, so uh, you know, that's the way that's the way it is. The, this is the card. These are the cards I've been dealt. I've got to I've got to. I mean, I, I just I'm on these support groups sometimes on the social where where you know, the spinal stenosis thing and people bitching and moaning because they can't do this, they can't do that. But like, what, how, how much have you worked at it? You know, physical therapy doesn't work. Yeah. But have you worked the program? Have you done it? You know, are you going to continue to do it after they, after they show you what needs to be done? It was, it was a miracle for me. You know, I was at a point where I could barely even walk without pain, went through physical therapy, continued to do the exercises and, you know, relatively pain-free once in a while, my back gets cranky. I said to my wife today, I said, you know, Sacking up a little bit. We had done a lot of yard work over the weekend. I said, let's take a little walk. So we just went out and walked a little, you know, soft mile. Felt better. You know, motion is lotion, right? Motion is lotion for the body, so, baby. That's so, it. So, so this is my job. You know, my job is to take as good a care of myself as I can, but still enjoy life. It's all about balance. You know, you know, I still have my relaxation, you know, and, uh, you know, we, we do some good things. We went up to the Asbury the other day with no plan. We just went up there and walked the boardwalk with our dog, you know, I mean, it's just, I'm enjoying life, living it to its fullest. And I want to live as long as I can. Uh, you deserve it, man. After that story, you told me, <laughs> you deserve it. thank you so much for coming on this podcast. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for the invitation, man. I, I, I really, really enjoyed it. I'm so glad you reached out to me. I'm glad. I hope we get a chance to do this again. If you, if you're up for it, I would love to, the people who listen to this right now would absolutely love that. And then we can dial in on some of the awesome experiences. Well, you you let me know. Yeah, give me some feedback. You let me know. We, we can will. go into more detail on anything anybody wants to. You know? I will. Ladies and gentlemen. If it happened again, it pro there was probably things that I could tell you that maybe I wasn't sure I should say. Yeah, okay, yeah. So you're holding back a little bit. A little bit. <laughs> yeah, no, that's fine. This podcast is so over. You can say whatever you want because I'm in control <laughs> of it, you know, and I don't have any partnerships or anything like that. So right. it's awesome. You know, I, I, I am the strong gents. Uh, yeah head guy and 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 the actual uh coaching program so you can say whatever you want that's I'll good stuff man, man. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for supporting man ladies and gentlemen that is chuck the man if you haven't please leave a five-star review and share this with two friends and don't forget our motto here get strong and stay strong chuck thank you so much okay sam thank you